You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Well, we just sing that song, Rescue, and I'm so grateful for the rescue of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives, that he would come and that he would want to rescue us. And one of the beautiful things about being a believer is not only have we experienced rescue, but we have the opportunity then with our lives to rescue others. We can reach out to others. We can compassionately help with the needs in our world. And it seems like just days ago that the explosion happened in the port city of Beirut, Lebanon. And I'm so pleased that when you give at Sun Grove Church that we were able to take a portion of that and immediately meet some of the needs by providing hundreds of meals for people who are near starvation on the ground there in Beirut. And we were able to respond very, very quickly because we have a fund called Discretionary Missions that enables us to handle surprises, handle things that we could never see in the future, but respond with compassion very, very quickly. And I just want you to know, just to be proud of your church, that we were able to do some work there just to help people with meals on the ground uh, in Beirut for those who are affected by that tragedy. Uh, tragedies are often surprises. They were unexpected. You might remember back in the day that in the 70s, we were sending people to try to walk on the moon. And uh, you may have seen the movie Apollo 13, but in that Tom Hanks movie, they were on a rocket. They launched out into the atmosphere. They were on their way to the moon. And partway on their process of their mission, they experienced a problem. And if you've watched the movie, you remember Tom Hanks saying, we heard a bang, and then we started leaking propellant. And all of a sudden dawns on him that they will not have enough propulsion to get back to Earth. And they have a problem. And so you just remember all of a sudden that the moon landing is out of the, the equation, that instantly for, for the astronauts on that flight, their dream of actually landing and walking on the moon is scrapped, it's done, it's over. They can't do it. And they have, a, in a sense, mission failure. Now they've got to focus on how to get back to Earth. And you remember the famous line when the astronaut got on the radio and told the control, he said, Houston, we have a problem. And the crazy thing for me is to think back that that was the 70s. In the 70s, you had computers that were the size of a high school classroom that was able to do less than the smartphone or the tablet or the Apple TV or the TV even that you're watching online church on. And they were as big as a room, but even on that spacecraft, they weren't taking computers that size on the spacecraft. I mean, at that time, they were trying to reach the moon by using a propane tank and the slide rule. That's what it was like in the 70s. And they were just trying to get there, but they realized when they had this problem with the propellant that Houston, we have a problem. They had to begin to discern, can there be another move? Is there another way besides the propellant we had on board to get back to earth? And they began to have to figure out and use the work of a whole entire team who said, basically, if we can use the gravity of the moon and slingshot around the moon, we can generate enough speed to get back to earth and in an amazing turn of events, they were able to make it when a surprise happened. Well, that's the moment that the early church finds itself in, in Acts chapter 9. This is a moment when the early church would say, uh, Houston, we have a problem. 
And I know what you're thinking. Many of you are thinking it's not just the early church. Many of you would look at the year 2020 and you would say, if historians in the future were to write the title for 2020, they would probably entitle 2020 as Houston, we have a problem because it's just been that kind of year. And right now in Acts chapter nine in the Bible, we find that the church has a problem. We just lost our best preacher. Stephen was literally martyred. He was killed. Persecution starts and people are leaving. They can no longer gather in the synagogues. They can no longer gather where they thought they could gather. The church people are becoming scattered. They don't see each other. Are you feeling any of this yet now in 2020? You might say, Houston, we have a problem. It feels like a dark time. And what the people in the early church are actually thinking is this. Is this whole movement going to right now at this time be squashed? That's the question the early church is asking. And so in Acts chapter nine, beginning with verse one, it says this. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And he went to the high priest and he asked them for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if they found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Here's why you need today's sermon. Surprises come along, and there's a reason why you need to hear what you're going to hear today. And the reason you need today's sermon is this. The thing that you have in life that you think is your biggest enemy, it's about to become God's chosen instrument. The thing that you think is your biggest enemy, perhaps for you it's your biggest weakness, perhaps it's an actual enemy, perhaps for you it's just something that you run into all the time or that it's just too big, it's your impossible situation that you don't think you can overcome. The thing that you have in life that you think is your biggest enemy is about to become God's greatest instrument. And that was the case of the early church. You know, one thing, one thing I love about God is that he always has one more move up his sleeve. He's always got something that you and I can't think about. He's always got something that, that is only God ordained. He's always got one more move up his sleeve for your life. He's always got one more move up his sleeve for the world or, or for your finances or for your marriage. The beautiful thing about God is that he's always got one more move up his sleeve. God is like this, listen, just wait. I'm at work here. I've got one more move. Just watch. You think all the hope is gone. You think that the, the future is set. You think the conditions right now are not going to improve or get better. But God's saying, watch. I am not done yet. I'm at work here. It's one of the things I love about God. So if you're taking notes today, write this down. God always has one more move. 
So Saul is out there and he's seen the stoning of Stephen to death. And now Saul is energized by that move. And he says, I will attack. I will get it done. I will persecute the church. He's breathing threats and murder. And he's out there doing that at this point. And he's getting letters to go throw other people in jail. And you can just imagine. I mean, picture with me just for a moment, just fictitiously a scene in heaven. Just picture for a moment. Here's God and he's looking and he's going, hmm. Okay, we've launched the early church and, and, and the apostles are, they're taking care of the Jewish people, but, but who's gonna preach the word of me to the Gentiles? Who's gonna do that? I mean, the disciples are busy. You know, I need somebody who's a mover. I need somebody who's a shaker. I need somebody who's a go-getter who gets the job done. Who do we have like that? And there's probably some angel off to the side. And he's like, um, excuse me, Lord, um, I mean, I know that there's this guy named Saul. He's breathing threats and he's murdering the church. And God is like, perfect. He's my guy. Who's the guy who's gonna go and get stuff done? Well, Saul is doing it. And God's like, I'm gonna use the guy who's attacking the church to become the greatest missionary the world has ever seen. And so Jesus meets Saul on the road to Damascus through a bright light and Saul at this point is now blind. He is helpless. His ability to carry out his threats is limited. He cannot do it at this point. He's been humbled in a way that only God can humble your greatest threat or my greatest threat. Only the way that God can. And so in Acts chapter nine, begin with verse 10, we see this. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias and the Lord called him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So you can picture for the moment, the church has a problem. Stephen's been killed. The church is saying, is all this gonna collapse? And God says, I have one more move. And God begins to reveal to this disciple named Ananias that he's to go and help Saul. But this is Saul. And I love it because Ananias is real with God. He's like, God, this is Saul. The one who's persecuting your church, the one who has murdered people, who's breathing out threats. This is the enemy. This is, this is Saul. It's the Saulinator. I mean, you remember the movies, The Terminator? In the first one, Arnold Schwarzenegger is the Terminator and he's out to kill you. Every time you see him, he's out to kill you and you're running away from him. And he's like, I'll be back. And you're just afraid that he's actually gonna come back. But then in the second movie, He's flipped. Now he's your protector. And he comes to you and he basically says, if you want to live, come with me now. And, and all of a sudden you have this conflict in your head like, wait, wait, how did this guy switch teams all of a sudden? How did that happen? And that's what's happening with Saul. 
He's the solinator, the terminator. And he is saying, now I have been untrustworthy, but now is the church going to trust me that I am God's chosen instrument? And God says to Ananias, you know what that guy? That guy that you think is your biggest enemy? He's my chosen instrument. So Acts chapter nine, verse 17, it carries on. Then Ananias went to the house and he entered it and placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me to you so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again and he got up and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. God is basically telling Ananias, listen, this movement, this movement of the early church, the good news of new life through me, God is basically saying, this is about to go global through this guy if, Ananias, you will open up your life to him. Are you willing to obey me? Even though it doesn't seem to make sense. Are you willing to obey me because I'm not done with the story. I have another move up my sleeve and it's a big risk. I mean, you can protect yourself from risk. You can choose to isolate. You can choose to engage messy people in a messy pandemic. It's almost the same way. He's saying, Ananias, you can choose. You can choose to enter this messy life of this guy who is hated on the church. Will you risk that? Will you risk it? Well, I want to tell you, as I've been telling you, and I want to continue to tell you, as the church, that I think our next move is that we open up our places, uh, our homes, our apartments, our wherever, and we have people join us to watch church online that I think God wants to use. We don't know how long this season goes on. God wants to use us as the church, as the meeting place, as the community, as the people of the way, which is what the church was called initially. It's the way, the way to life. That God would use you and me to watch church together and that we'd be the witness to people who don't know him. So you could start an online circle. If you need to self-isolate, start an online circle. And that way, you're both risking, but you're also protecting other people's health. Listen, I gotta tell you something. I just think that God is shaking us, that the culture is moving in such a way that God's saying, I wanna leverage what's happening right now to reach lost people in a way that no other thing potentially could reach them. And I wanna remind you, listen, if people die and they are unsaved, they will spend eternity in hell. And I get this feeling in our culture that people are more concerned about keeping people out of the ICU than they are about keeping them out of hell. And I wanna just tell you that, listen, they can't be saved if they're dead. So I'm gonna ask you to take a risk, to be like Ananias, to go to the most unlikely person, to open your life and open your security so that someone else may have the chance to choose Jesus and to choose life. I mean, honestly, let's be honest. If we die, we go to heaven because we're saved. Be the church. God is sending you and God is sending me to the solinators of the world. Why? Because God is continuing to raise up his chosen instruments just like he's already done with you and he's done with me. 
It's interesting, last week I shared church online uh, in person with a person in the Middle East. And, and all I know about this person, I don't know them, all I know about this person is that she follows my photos on Instagram. That's all I know, but her writing's all in Arabic and it doesn't translate for me, so I don't know, I don't know really anything about her, but I just felt prompted, so I, I said, I'm gonna share church online with this young lady, and I sent a, a link to watch church online. Well, she got involved in our chat, and she began to let us know that she was actually watching church online, and she was using Google Translate to be able to follow along with the sermon. I mean, who does that? I want you to know people want to know about Jesus. That God will leverage one thing, like all I know about this person is that they follow my photos on Instagram. But God wants to say, will you risk? Will you send an invite to someone like that so that they might, in fact, learn about Jesus? And what Jesus wants to know is, will you take the risk? Will you take the risk? Ananias, will you go to Saul? God's asking you, will you share church online? Will you share Jesus Christ with someone else? And I love about Ananias is he's honest with his fears. He's honest with being afraid. He expresses his fears to God. And then what I love about him is that then he obeys anyway. You know, psychologists and other people tell us that in order to disarm the power of our fears, we've got to play our fears out. Because the biggest handle that fear can have on you is the unknown. And so people always ask, well, what if? And then they're afraid of the worst extreme experiences of what if. And so what psychologists will do is say, well, let's play out your fear. If you have a fear, let's go ahead and play that out. And here's what it could look like. Let's play out your fears. Some of you would say, well, if I share Jesus with somebody at work, I might lose my job. Well, that's a legitimate fear but let's play it out for a moment. Let's say that you do share Jesus with somebody in the workplace and that you do lose your job. Can Jesus provide for you a new job? Can he do that? Can the God you believe in, can God do that if you were to risk? Can he? Let's play that fear out. Others of you say, well, I, I might be sick or I might get sick by being around other people and let's say that you do. Let's say you risk. Let's say you had some people over. Maybe they're even your own relatives. And you had them over and you shared church online with them. Let's say you got sick. Let me ask you something about the God you believe in. Can God allow you to have a mild case? Can God do that? Can Jesus do that? And sometimes even if you got a very awful case and you ended up dying, can Jesus bring you to heaven? Can he? He's asking a very similar question right now to Ananias. Because the threat for Ananias is imprisonment and death. It's not a milder situation. It's the same situation. Hey, you might say, well, I don't know. I don't know if I want to start giving to the compassionate needs through the church around the world. And I'm not sure I want to honor God with the first of my income with the tithe. And, and do you think, though, with the God you believe in, do you think that Jesus can make up the difference in what you give? I believe very much that God will stretch your 90% to meet 100% of your needs. Let me ask you on the flip side, as we play that fear out, do you think God is going to bless the percentage that you hold back from him? Do you think God's going to bless that? And other people will say, well, all right, I might, maybe I, I'd like to risk 
hosting or starting an online circle, a circle group either online or in person. But sometimes fears come up when we risk in those ways. And people say, well, let's say I start it, but then no one comes. I mean, that's just like, maybe I'll put myself out there and then I'm afraid just nobody will come. Well, let's just play that out for a minute. Let's say that nobody comes. Did Jesus see your desire to obey his calling to be the church and to be in community with others? Did Jesus see that? Do you think he will honor that? I think he will. But let's talk about the bigger fear. The biggest fear is not that people might not come. The bigger fear is that people might actually come to your group. They might join your online circle. They might come to your house. They might be in your circle. And God will then use you as his chosen instrument. You will be okay. You'll be even stronger as you begin to bond with other friends and new believers. So let's play those fears out and not just make a decision based on self-protection. And that's the choice that Ananias is challenged with here. I express my fears very honestly to God, but then I'm gonna choose to obey. And so Ananias goes to see Saul. Our fear is legitimate. But the beautiful thing is that faith drives out fear. And none of us are gonna be free from fear forever. We all experience it. But faith is one of the things that overcomes that fear. When we let fear drive our lives though, there's a word that describes that. What does it look like when fear drives your life? The word is faithless. Faithless. That's the thing Jesus all the time was challenging his disciples on. Do you have no faith? Do you have such little faith? What is he saying? He's saying, if you continue to let your fears drive your life, you're gonna live a life that is actually faithless. And this is to the one who calls himself faithful. God Almighty. You only believe to a point And then at some point, the squeezing gets too hard. The risk is too big. And so what happens is a lot of people then just choose self. Uh, God, I hear you, but that's asking too much. And so I'm gonna go ahead and choose myself. I'm gonna choose my own opinions. I'm gonna choose my own loyalties. I'm gonna choose my own family. God, I'm not gonna obey you because I'm gonna choose self. And in doing so, we reject dying to self. What is God's Holy Spirit asking Ananias to do here? Ananias, I'm asking you to die to yourself, to take up your possible cross and follow me. Ananias was being asked by the Holy Spirit to die to his own self-preservation and to meet with Saul. If you're taking notes, write this down. Godly risk is always right. Godly risk is always right. Now, not all risk is right, right? I mean, when your kids want to play Olympic sports and do dangerous stunts in the house, that is not right. Like, it's not always right. That's, that's actually risky behavior. You don't want to actually do that. But godly risk is always right. When God is calling you and I to reach out, to step out, to risk, godly risk is always right. And I want to point out that somewhere along the line, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, someone put up with you and with your mess and took a godly risk on you instead of trying to just get rid of you. Oh, there was plenty of people in the church who just wanted to get rid of Saul. Let's get rid of Saul and his persecution. Let's get rid of Saul. We're glad he saw a bright light on the road, but let's just get rid of the guy. But somebody had to take a godly risk. And God's Holy Spirit is asking Ananias 
to do exactly that. We ask the question sometimes, well, why didn't, why Ananias? Like, why didn't God's Holy Spirit ask one of the apostles to go see Saul? I mean, why Ananias? This is the first time we've ever heard of the guy. Why is God asking him? And I want to tell you this, because God often asks people without a title to risk for him. See, the natural excuse of people is always, well, the church should do that. The pastors should go and do that. The church should do this, that, or the other. And God's like, you are the church. I'm asking you. You're a member of the way. You're one who's gonna be called a Christian. You are my chosen instrument. You are my disciple. And I have called you to take godly risk. And godly risk is always right. Nope, God is calling you to risk for him. You, at a time like this, not a time later, but right now. And Ananias goes and calls him and meets with him. So he goes, he meets with Saul. And I love what the scriptures say because the scriptures say that Ananias called him Brother Saul. I don't know about you, but for a lot of people in the early church, that would have been the furthest title from their mind. That was so intentional on Ananias' part. That was a visible choice for him to call him a brother. Brother Saul. It is a risk that is realized. And if God can save someone like Saul, there's hope for everyone. And maybe today you're watching church online and you're thinking, could God ever accept me because I just know how much I've sinned. I know the condition of my life. I know where I've been. I know what I've done. And I don't know if God could accept me. And I want you to realize in this moment by the example of Saul, that if God could take someone who's breathing murderous threats and murdering people in the church, murdering God's people and throwing them in jail and attacking them, if God would accept Saul, then God could absolutely accept you. And some of you are watching and you're saying, well, I've accepted God, but I don't know if God could use me because I'm aware of how much I've sinned. Like I knew better, but I did it anyway. And so could God use me? And again, I wanted to say, again, we capture that fear and we make it obedient to what we see in God's word. If God could use Saul, then that is massive encouragement that God would use you and your life and that God always has one more move. God always has another move up his sleeve, and that involves you in your life. It's not over. He has not finished. God is not done with you. He has not dismissed you. He has not put you to the side, but that he remembers you, and he has work that he's calling you to do. The example of Saul shows the patience and the long-suffering of God concerning you. Well, what does Saul do? Saul immediately begins to preach in Damascus that Jesus is the Messiah in the local synagogue. And the Jews, they don't know what to do that. They try to kill him. But the word tells us that he baffles them. You got to realize something about Saul. Saul was a brilliant protege as a Pharisee. He is absolutely brilliant. This is a guy who's three steps ahead of his contemporaries. That, and what he does at this point is he he goes ahead and he begins to preach in the synagogues. But before he does that, he gets baptized. You want to know why? Because that's what baptism is. Baptism is, it publicly says, I've switched teams. That's what it says. 
It's telling everybody else, I already have the Holy Spirit. God has already saved me through his death, his burial, his resurrection. And now I'm telling everybody else that I've been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Saul gets baptized, then he immediately goes and begins to teach in the synagogues. And so we find this in Acts 9, verse 20. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among all those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. So everybody else is afraid of him. Even the apostles are afraid. They are hearing what's going on in Damascus, but Damascus is not Jerusalem. He is not there yet. He's in Damascus and some crazy things are going on. They're hearing some things about him, but they know what he's done right in their own neighborhoods. They know what he's done right in their state, right in their backyard, and they don't trust him yet. And so I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. Don't miss out on your Barnabas moment. Your Barnabas moment. Barnabas was a guy in the early church. His name means son of encouragement. But not only did his name mean that, but he begins to live it out as we begin to see in Acts chapter nine, beginning with verse 26. It said, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. And then the next two words are huge. It says, but Barnabas... Everybody's afraid. Everybody's scared. Everybody think this is one of his brilliant ways to try to trick people to come out so he could just arrest them and haul them off to prison or have them killed. But Barnabas, a son of encouragement, says, took him and brought him to the apostles. And he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus, he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed on with them, moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. And he talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews and they tried to kill him. And when the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Wow. God flip-flops it. He's got another move up his sleeve. This move actually led from persecution to actually a time of peace, a time where the church can grow in number, where the time where the church can grow in depth, where people can get discipled. This crisis time actually turns into a time of growth for the church. But it all started with one guy who was willing to put his arm around Saul and vouch for him in front of the others. But Barnabas, while everybody else was afraid, Barnabas came alongside somebody who was really messy, somebody who God was reaching to, but the rest of the world hadn't caught up with that idea yet. And I want you to be a spiritual encourager 
to risk being with someone else, to be someone who overlooks somebody else's mess and their roughness and their, their rough edges and their opinions and that they don't have it all together, that they don't know where it all is, that they, they don't even look like a Christian, let alone speak or act like one yet, but take a godly risk with a person whom the Holy Spirit is revealing to you. And I believe as the church dispersed right now, that God is revealing to us Reach out to this neighbor. Reach out to this person. Don't miss your Barnabas moment. And listen to me carefully. If you've been part of Sun Grove Church for over a year, then this is your moment. Welfare is over. It's over. God is calling you out in this crisis time right now to not miss your Barnabas moment. Take the time to reach to somebody in their mess with the good news of Jesus. I mean, isn't that what we frankly do when we become parents? I mean, I remember becoming a parent. By the way, when are you ready to become a parent? The answer is never. You're never ready to become a parent because, you know, there's never enough training on how to be a good parent. You, get, you never have enough cash in the bank. You never have enough time. You think your time, how can my time be divided with a kid or many kids? And you just wonder how that's ever going to work. None of us are ever ready to become a parent. But listen, the greatest outpouring of encouragement from your life to another life is going to be in raising a child. And listen, I'm not sugarcoating that that you are going to not do it perfectly, that they can reject you, that they can say no to you, that they will cause you the greatest pleasures in life, but also the greatest pains in life. They might say no, they might walk away from the Lord, but you can come along to help raise a child. And your moment of risk is in being a parent. You don't wait till you're ready. In the same way, I just wanna tell you that God is calling you to your Barnabas moment right now. The moment of risk is now. And let me tell you, if you want to just have a perfect house, you want to have perfect possessions and keep them all nice and you don't ever want crayons on the wall or carpet being messed up, then just, just don't have kids. But there are so many of us who have kids because we realize something. Write this down. Scars tell a better story than fears. Scars tell a better story than fears. Heather and I will look at each other a lot of times and we'll say, um, we say this phrase, we say, it's just carpet. It's just carpet. And if you've been to our house, we've been in our house about 11 years now and the carpet was old when we got in there and, and, and it's been used over 11 years. And, and that means we've had lots of people through the house and we've had kids running through the house and we've had the whole thing. And, and we look at the condition of our carpet sometimes and we're like, it's just carpet. Why? Because the carpet is going to tell a better story than having perfect carpet. The stories of what wore out the carpet in our house is going to be far better stories than having perfect carpet in our house. Why? Because scars tell a better story than fears. It's just obedience. And God is calling you to step into the realm of messy people. He's calling you to reach out to others. And what I find a lot of times right now is that people are saying, well, I'm willing to reach out to others, but let's just be practically honest. There are a lot of you right now who just wanna say, I don't wanna give up a night of my week. Let's just be honest. You're just saying, I just don't wanna give up another night of my week. 
but I want you to know that if you were to risk giving up a night of your week to start a circle group or be a part of a circle group or to reach out to somebody else and invite people over to your house, even just to watch online church, something like that, that if you were to do that, that night of the week will begin to tell better stories than the Netflix that you were planning to binge watch on. Scars tell a better story than fears. Do you know what Jesus' resurrected body still has on it? His resurrected from the grave body still has on it his scars. In his hands, in his feet, in his side. We're told that Jesus' resurrected body still has scars. Why? Because those scars meant that he took the risk on you. Those scars on him tell a better story than fears do. Jesus' scars tell the best story that he took a risk on you and on me. And maybe today for the first time you're realizing I've never responded to the actual death of Jesus on the cross, that he died on the cross in that way for my sin. He canceled out those sins before a righteous God and that he's calling me to relationship and that the bright light might be shining in your head or in your heart right now, that God is reaching to you saying, come to me, stop persecuting me, stop running away from me, come to me, you are my chosen instrument. I love you, I will forgive you of all your sins. You'll be washed as white as snow, but I've created you for such a time as this. And if that's you today, right where you are, just take a moment and pray a prayer like this to say, Jesus, today, I give you me. I believe you died on the cross for my sins and that you were buried. You rose to new life because you're God. And I ask you today to forgive me of everything I've ever done wrong. Wash me as white as snow. Make me a new creation on the inside, your chosen instrument. Because today, Jesus, I give you me. And as you do that, there are not only angels who rejoice and all heaven rejoicing, but there are people that your life will impact who will rejoice that God had one more move up his sleeve and that one more move was you because you're gonna reach out to them with the love that you've experienced from Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.